This is Season 2 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 2.48, Goosebumps. And we are your I'm Nina, new to Zeta, but only for a few more weeks. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 316 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters, Vino Burrito, Patrick OS, Blackjack, Sandrino S, Jonathan C, and Derby City Ginger. MSB would not be possible without your support. Right now, it behooves anyone with any kind of platform to speak out and to do so unambiguously and forcefully. So, make no mistake, Black Lives Matter. Police brutality and impunity must end now. This is not the time for half measures or gradual reformism. MSB stands in solidarity with the demonstrators throughout the United States and around the world who are fighting for justice. Some of you out there might be thinking that it's not appropriate for us to speak out against police brutality on our podcast about Zeta Gundam. And I only ask that you sit for a little while and think about why you feel that way. This week, we are covering Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam Episode 47, A Descent into the Maelstrom. After the recap and our talkback, we ask, what does Edgar Allan Poe have to do with Zeta Gundam? But first, let's tune in to the Titans News Network. Hello? Hello? Is this thing on? Lieutenant Alex Oxchild, broadcasting from the local TNN affiliate here at Bergamino Plaza on side six. Lieutenant Tom Thompson remains dead, and we haven't heard anything from Lieutenant Commander Nina Zdodiron or Space Fortress TNN Astra for several days now. We ran out of pre-recorded TV segments this morning, so um, I went into our archives here and dug out the tapes from some of TNN's most historic broadcasts. I think all you TNN superfans out there will get a real kick out of hearing from these two elite newscasters before they became the genre-spanning multimedia superstars they are today. Hi there, citizens. I'm Warrant Officer Tom Thompson. I'm Chief Petty Officer Nina Nina's daughter. And, and this, this is, is the, the truth. truth! The ongoing demonstrations on the 30-bunch colony turned violent today when political agitators from other colonies, calling themselves AUG, 
viciously attacked our noble titan's protectors. The day's protests started calmly enough, with crowds gathering to demand something or other. Who can remember all the things Spacenoids complain about? In the afternoon, anti-Titan activists, probably paid by sinister oligarch Melanie Hugh Carbine, delivered a series of increasingly unhinged rants to a small, bored-seeming crowd of locals. <laughs> it's cute how ineffective they are. The protesters also displayed banners, which contained messages both rude and offensive to Earthnoids. But don't worry, Titan's security forces already in the area moved swiftly to quell these out-of-hand riots before they could get any more violent. A Titan spokesperson told us that after protesters hurled vile slanders and vicious invective at them, a chemical agent became dispersed, and it is expected to restore order soon. Great news! Federation Council legislators objected to the Titan's use of force on My Earth and Spacebook, and pledged eventual reform. In other news, the Federation Council has approved the Titan's proposed budget for the next fiscal year, which includes a 15% increase in funding to pay for new mobile suit development. Rumors are circulating that the Titan's base on GRIPS 2 may be working on an exciting new Gundam-type mobile suit, but I can't wait to see what other types of mobile suit they come up with next. Maybe an even higher Zack? Or some kind of refined Gelgoog? So what does Ayug stand for, Tom? You know what? I don't know. But I'm sure we'll find out before too long. I hope you enjoyed that. We'll have more from the TNN Archive when we return. And now the recap for A Descent into the Maelstrom. The pilots of the Argama and across Ayug are preparing to launch. Operation Maelstrom begins now. The already shaky alliance with Axis has broken down, and they need to wrest the terrible power of the colony laser from Haman. Katz, ever competitive, is angry that Camille will launch first, and makes to launch the G-Defensor and go with Camille on his diversionary mission. Fa attempts to stop him, but at the same time is trying to wrangle Shintang Kum and Katz launches without permission. Mere moments later, Fa takes off after him in the Methus. Camille is surprised when Katz catches up to him. At first, Katz claims that he couldn't let Camille go alone, but soon admits that he came because he now blames Haman for Sarah's death and believes he should be the one to avenge her. Convinced that Katz is too emotional and will put them both at risk, Camille orders Katz back to the ship. When he won't go, Camille threatens to shoot until Fa intercedes in their standoff. Determined to end the war as quickly as possible, Camille orders Katz and Fa back to the main Ayug force, while he takes off to kill Haman. Not one to be told what to do, Katz follows again, and again, Fa goes after him. In the meantime, the battle rages on. Shar takes to the field for the first time in many battles, going with body to disable the colony laser by destroying its solar panels. On the bridge of the Guanban, Haman is given a status report. They have the strength advantage, but their forces are getting in their own way, and their formations are letting too many Ayug mobile suits through. She is suddenly overcome by a sense of pressure, her arms covered in goosebumps, and wonders who it could be. Nearby, Camille hides behind an asteroid, 
waiting for her to come out. Char and Body destroy the Colony Laser's power system without too much trouble before being attacked by Axis pilots. One of the three is killed right away, and the other two decide that defending the Colony Laser, which is no use whatsoever in this battle, is not worth risking their lives. Ayug has managed to surround the Colony Laser so that Axis forces stationed there cannot get through. It seems to Haman that she will have to go out and handle this herself. The first to attack her is Katz, but she outmaneuvers him easily, and when one of her wingmen lands on top of the G-Defensor, Katz is in serious trouble. Fa comes to his rescue, shooting down the Axis pilot and leading Katz to a safer position. You are the source of all our fighting, Camille yells at Haman as he joins the fight. With Fa and Katz keeping other nearby Axis pilots occupied, Camille and Haman face only each other, exchanging attacks shot for shot and slash for slash, until they are both suddenly overcome. Waves of energy radiate off them so strongly that Emma and Shar sense it from across the battlefield. Pink and purple and blue new type space engulfs Camille and Haman. They seem to float, each wonders where they are. Ghostly projections of faces flash before Camille's eyes. Four and Rosami, Emma and Rekoa, Fa and his mother. But none of these women are the person he is sensing. But it is someone he met long ago. Haman's experience is much the same. She sees Shar and Sirocco, but knows that this isn't either of them. Their vision clouds again. Camille sees a hazy vision of him as a child, standing next to his mother. Haman sees herself, leaning on Shar, both of them in civilian clothes next to a beautiful lake in the mountains. Are these memories? Are they dreams? Both new types clutch their heads in pain, their wave-like auras arcing overhead and tying together in a sort of knot. Beams of light shoot from the knot as Camille realizes that he and Haman saw the same thing, that this shared memory must be the key to understanding each other. Yet Haman discounts them as only memories, and angrily accuses the Zeta of getting too close to her, of deluding her and meddling with her mind. Her anger snaps them both back to their physical bodies, in the midst of a battle in space. She resumes her attacks, but Camille no longer wants to kill Haman. He believes peace and understanding are possible if only she would stop fighting. She raises her beam saber to Camille and is struck by cats. He continues to buzz around Haman, but she evades him and slashes through one of the G-Defensor's stabilizers, sending Katz spinning out of control. Refocusing on Camille, Haman shoots, only for Fa to dash in, protecting Camille with the Methus and losing one of the mobile suit's legs in the process. Seeing Fa come so close to death ends Camille's hope for a peaceful resolution with Haman. He distracts her by throwing his beam rifle and bayonet at her before firing ropes to entangle the Kubele's arm. Pulling the ropes to bring the Kubele closer, he raises his beam saber to strike, but hears, people can understand each other, right? That moment costs him. His strike goes wide, cutting off part of the Kubele's shoulder, disabling but not destroying it. Haman runs back to the Guamban, hoping to regroup her forces and continue the attack. After their encounter, she decides that Camille, not Char, is the real threat. Camille, Fa, and Katz return to the main force, but taking on the Axis defenders of the Colony Laser has become like shooting fish in a barrel, and the second wave of Nemo mobile suits mop up the last of the opposition. The Colony Laser is captured, 
and the troops aboard it surrender to Ayug. Full of regret, Camille blames himself for not killing Haman when he had the chance. Shar tries to comfort him, but also warns him that he is turning out like Amuro, and Amuro spent seven years in a kind of hell before he got free. The fight isn't over. Ayug must now turn their attention to the moon, where the asteroid base axis has been aimed at the lunar city of Granada. The casual observer of Zeta Gundam could be forgiven for thinking that we may have skipped an episode. It seems like a lot has happened in the space between the end of the previous episode and the beginning of this one. The Ayug Axis Alliance, which seemed to be falling apart towards the end, is now completely off. But more abruptly, Axis has taken over the Colony Laser and... Ayug has decided that they are going to take over the colony laser. We open mid-operation as Ayug deploys to attack the Axis garrison there. Sirocco and the Jupitris are nowhere to be found, nor is there any mention of any other remnants of the Titans. Really, everyone in this episode behaves as though the Titans had never existed. <laughs> we'll touch on that some more when we talk about specific characters, but everybody acts like... Like, what Titans? What are you talking about? Yeah. Who are they? What do they have to do with anything? Well, I think it's worth mentioning, as long as we're talking about the abrupt transition, that Katz, who at the end of the last episode killed Sarah while she was trying to protect Sirocco, has now decided that Haman is responsible for Sarah's death somehow. We also hear Camille blame Haman for the entire war, it sounds like. You're the, the source, the origin of the fighting. This is all your fault. When she didn't even show up until they had been fighting for like a year. Yeah, he got into this because of the Titans. He had never even heard of Haman. Yeah, I. it's weird. It's very weird. When we finished watching this episode, I actually went and checked to make sure that we hadn't skipped an episode. Haman tells us that in terms of relative strength, I assume she means uh, like individual soldiers and ships, uh, Axis is very strongly placed. And we've seen that. We have a general understanding from the show that Ayug is smaller than either of the other two factions. Uh, and there have been several scenes that are meant to impress upon us the size and strength of Axis. And yet... <laughs> <laughs> well, numbers aren't everything. In this episode, we learn that Axis is very inexperienced, poorly trained, poorly organized, not ready for this fight. Whereas Ayug, while smaller, uh, are veterans of the long war against the Titans. I did wonder about this, though, because our initial thought was, ah, if Ayug are mostly veterans and Axis are mostly not veterans, then that might explain why things seem uh, <laughs> so haphazard, even though Axis should have an advantage. However... In the scene where Shar and Body take on three Axis pilots, the one whose face we see, he looks older and he's missing an eye. Yeah, he's presumably a veteran of the One Year War. I think his reaction there, where they fly in to try and take out these two other mobile suits, immediately one of his two wingmen gets shot down and he basically says, well, bleep this. <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't care about this stupid colony laser. I'm leaving. Yeah, he actually, when they first fly in, he's like, how dare you damage our precious colony laser? And within five seconds, he's flying out like, man, forget the colony laser. Nobody likes colony lasers anymore. But I think it shows us a lot about a certain failure of leadership, potentially, Mm. in Axis, or possibly an excess of secrecy. Because here's the thing about the colony laser. It's not any good in this kind of fight. It's not going to be useful against ships for the most part. It's not going to be useful against mobile suits, definitely. It is for attacking colonies and it is for attacking the Earth. It's a way to hold big civilian populations hostage, basically, Mm -hmm. which has like a long-term strategic benefit for Axis. But in this battle, tactically, no, it's just a resource they're trying to protect. It's not going to help in any way. And for some reason, that's not something that the soldiers on the ground, it seems, have a sense of. Well, that or it's a morale issue. Because they're not sufficiently well experienced and trained and uh, because they're not hardened to this, they'll flee at the first sign of trouble. However, it's also not a good sign if you, the ostensible like political leader of your people, have to take to the field because all of your soldiers and commanders are just so incompetent that you personally have to go out and deal with it. That's not a great sign. No, it isn't. <laughs> Though it does, again, harken back to older ways of telling these grand epic political mm. stories. Mm-hmm. And now we're getting into like tales out of mythology or ancient history, things like the Iliad, the tale of the Heike, the romance of the three kingdoms. All of these are sagas around the doings of a handful of truly great heroes. You know, people like to make fun of the Dynasty Warriors games, which are a a modern video game retelling of Romance of the Three Kingdoms because of the way the heroes go out and just mow down like countless I guess it's not actually countless because there's a little tracker in the bottom (laughs) corner of the screen that tells you exactly how many. But they go out and they they kill hundreds and thousands of faceless conscripts in every battle. And the only real threat is from other heroes. And people make fun of that, as I said. But that's actually what the Romance of the Three Kingdoms is like if you read it. And it's the way a lot of these stories go. The older epics. Mm -hmm. And it's the way Zeta works. Uh, The heroes are basically never troubled by the faceless grunts. It's hero-on-hero battles that are the linchpin of these conflicts. Which is worth pointing out very different from the way first Gundam battles played out. The larger battles like Odessa and Solomon and Abawaku were about big clashes of basically anonymous soldiers and the individual duels between heroes like Amuro and Shar, those were happening within the battle, but basically irrelevant to the final outcome. The abruptness of the shift from the previous episode to this one and the sheer amount of content that feels like it's been left out makes it feel as though they are like rushing now that we're in the last couple of episodes. I mean, this is episode 47 of 50. As they're getting to the end, there's a sense that there isn't enough time to lay out everything they want to lay out. Uh, And that continues in the final ending narration, which explains that now AU has to race to get to Axis and prevent it from threatening Granada, which is all stuff we didn't know about until the ending narration. There's nothing in the episode that talks about that or suggests that that's going on and nothing in the prior episode either. He doesn't do much in this episode, but almost for that reason, I want to talk about Bright. 
What are you talking about? He doesn't do much. He explains what the word maelstrom means to Shinta and Kum. I hope this is deliberate storytelling on their part, but remembering the bright of First Gundam and seeing bright here, I am so disappointed. Yeah. He was a much stronger leader, even when he was younger and less experienced. Here, we see him entirely unable to control his own troops. Katz and Fa both take off without permission. Not only do they take off without permission, but Katz is so accustomed to doing this that when Fa's like, Katz, you can't take off without permission, he's just like, no, I do it all the time. <laughs> I absolutely can. And then, basically resigned to the fact that his troops are uncontrollable, Bright is like, oh, well, I guess three is the right size for a diversionary group anyway. <laughs> Just trying to, like, justify it after the fact and make it look intentional. Yeah, or just trying to make the best of a bad situation. It's kind of like a, there's no point in shutting the barn door after the horses, horses have bolted. bolted. Yeah. Fair. And then in that scene with Shinta and Kum... There's very much this sense of like, ah, uh, I like playing the father figure when young kids are, you know, very well behaved and listening to me and acting like I'm important. But the minute they act like children, I resent it. <laughs> it also just outlines how little there is for him to do. He's commanding an entire fleet in the middle of an important battle. And he has time to like have Shinta and Kum sit on his knee on the bridge while he explains the name of the operation. Do you not have things to do? Apparently not, which is so different from the way it was in First Gundam. Like, his command role on the white base was very active and essential for what was going on. I found his reaction to Shinta and Kum being like, cool, now that we know this thing, we can go to the doctor and get candy. Like, that's that sounds like small children to me, <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's very typical. And the fact that he's like, rah, 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 rah. And the fact that he then complains, like, what am I, a nursery? It's like, you were perfectly happy to take care of those kids as long as you thought they were being sort of adequately attentive and grateful. <laughs> and then the minute they act like children, you complain. Yeah. I suspect Bright might not be a very good dad. Hmm. Hmm. He's also not being portrayed as a particularly good captain in this. You know, in First Gundam, he was... Uh, directly involved in all of the internal white base drama and like he had a role to play in keeping everybody together and pointed in the same direction. And he certainly struggled and we saw him make missteps, but we could tell he was really trying to be the best commander he could. And it really feels in Zeta like he has abdicated that responsibility and no one else has picked it up. He just seems kind of checked out and inactive. You see this in the quality of the orders he's giving, too. This is a callback to season one, so, you know, a year ago now. But I pointed out that we see a difference between good commanders in First Gundam who give, like, specific, actionable orders and the ones who are just like, do better, fire harder. Why can't you be better at your jobs? And Bright has fallen into that pattern here. Now, part of that might just be the fact that we now have more pilots and all of the show's attention is really on those pilots. Rather than a sense of it being about the crew as a whole. Think about how many interesting, important characters, main characters, were on the bridge of the white base doing support tasks. Versus the bridge of the Argama, like, you know, 
Torres and Caesar and Sayugusa, like they're characters, they have names and sort of personalities, and occasionally they do stuff, but they do not compare to a Frabo, a Mirai, a Sela. I also noticed, despite the fact that they have resisted for some time letting Shar launch, he launches in this battle. I didn't think he felt particularly necessary. <laughs> it was necessary for him to go out. <laughs> he needed it. And this time they didn't stop him, though, because he's expressed a desire to go out several times before. Mm -hmm. And lately they've been telling him, like, no, you're too important. You can't go. He has deployed for some of the bigger engagements. I brought up Cats and Fa earlier because I think they fulfill some very important roles as sort of secondary and supporting characters in this episode. Cats continues to be reckless and selfishly motivated. We see him several times initially express, oh, I can't let Camille go alone, or oh, I have to help with the operation. But then he gets at his real reason, which is that he personally wants to avenge Sarah by killing Haman. Question marks? <laughs> I don't totally understand it. It's a mystery. But I do think that second reason is the true reason. The first Absolutely. reason is the justification, maybe this will convince you to let me go. And the second reason is the true reason. I think Katz's obsession with getting revenge for Sarah, and yet, <laughs> of all of the people responsible for Sarah's death, Haman is so far down the list. But anyway, uh, that's like the least of Katz's many sins. Um, <laughs> I think Katz's obsession with getting revenge for Sarah ultimately comes down to a desperate need on his part to uh, define what his relationship with her was. Because in life, his relationship with her was not what he wanted it to be. It was, in fact, very unsatisfying for him. Uh, Sarah rejected him repeatedly, despite his huge crush on her. And so now that she's dead and no longer has any say in it, if he is the one who like gets revenge for her death, he can claim a relationship with her that is deeper and more intense than it ever actually was. It's so dark. But it's very... Do you disagree? No. Well, it's reminding me of our discussions of honor culture mm -hmm. and how uh, women's honor is frequently used as like a proxy for men to have these conflicts. Like, oh, I'm defending so-and-so's honor. Mm -hmm. She may not want you to. <laughs> you don't particularly care. Yeah. If you remember when I was talking about dueling culture, there's a hierarchy of insults and an insult to a woman under your protection is worse than an insult to you personally. And if you remember all the way back to when I talked about the history of Japan's highly codified and structured system for official revenge taking, kataki, which is a, a word that Katz uses repeatedly here. It's both the general word for vengeance, but in the Japanese context, there's this specific set of rules from the medieval period about how vengeance is allowed to work. Uh, only certain people with certain strong relationships to the deceased are allowed to get revenge for the death. So by claiming the right to get revenge for Sarah, Katz is claiming a relationship with her. That he did not have. He seems genuinely shocked when Camille threatens to shoot him. This is a, a fantastic scene. So good. I thought the best part of the scene was actually in the music because when Camille pulls the gun on Katz, the scene feels like it should have a like a tense tenor, but the music is sad. There's no tension in it. It's just like, this is such a sad thing happening, even though that's not the energy of the characters at all. And Camille tells Katz, I cannot have you risking my life going out there 
too emotional to fight sensibly. My life, your life, the whole mission. In many ways, Fa represents a sort of middle emotional ground between the two of them in this episode. We have Katz acting sort of erratically and rashly. We have Camille trying not to act from a place of emotion, but uh, when he has that moment of connection with Haman, it really throws him and changes everything. And then we have Fa both interceding on Katz's behalf and trying to keep an eye on Katz and protect him, which she does, I think, a couple of times during this fight, but also protecting Camille and telling Camille, you're also acting emotionally, you know, have some sympathy for Katz. Classic Fa behavior. Two moments that involved Fa irritated me somewhat. They make her launch sort of weirdly and noticeably clumsy. Hmm. Which seemed odd to me. She's not an inexperienced pilot. Like, why is she having such a difficult launch? I didn't read that as clumsy, necessarily. I thought they were showing uh, just the effects of the G-forces on her body. I thought the launch itself went fine as far as her, like, skills and execution were concerned. But I agree with you. That is not a thing that they do for other pilots, for male pilots, the closest comparison in my mind was when Sela stole the Gundam mm-hmm. back in episode 17 or something of First Gundam. And you're hearkening back to an event where someone very inexperienced was very clumsy with right. their suit. And they did make a big show of the G-forces being more than this person was like ready to endure. To me, it felt like they were highlighting some inexperience or lack of skill on her part. Or just like, like she's not physically suited to this. Yeah, I don't... It, it rubbed the wrong way. I did not like it. It grated. And then when she goes to protect Camille from Haman's attack and the Methus gets hit, I had a moment of like, oh no, not again. <laughs> See, I... <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I loved that though. I liked this because after repeating this same event, the same motif so many times in Zeta specifically, you're so primed to think, oh no, now Fa dies. Except she doesn't. Like, if you're going to repeat it that many times, at least you've got to start playing with it like this. Mm-hmm. That's true. And it does serve as sort of a pivotal moment. And we're going to talk a bit more about Camille and Haman probably right after this. But Camille goes in thinking he needs to kill Haman. Their moment of connection convinces him that maybe that's not necessary. And so suddenly he's switched to, I really don't want to kill you. We need to stop this. When Haman almost kills Fa, that switches him back. It's like, okay, clearly there is no way to sort of reach you. There is no way for us to build mutual understanding, which is something I think he should have picked up on earlier because of Haman's reaction to their Mm -hmm. connection. But I think this lays out a thematic clash that is very important to Zeta Gundam, especially in contrast to First Gundam. And I'll talk about that I think a little bit more after we talk about Camille. Let's get into Camille now then. So yeah, Camille and Haman's conflict in this episode is the other important thing that happens besides Ayug taking control of the colony laser. We get several very strong hints that Camille is becoming a stronger new type. Haman and Minerva's goosebumps moments. Well, and Haman several times while she's still on the Guadan like feels this uh, this pressure. The Guanban. The Guadan was right. destroyed. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, there are so few times that I remember a fact about Zeta that Tom has forgotten. I have to gloat a little bit when it happens. No, it's fair. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, so yeah, on the Guanban, Haman repeatedly feels this force she doesn't recognize. And what they are feeling is Camille's intent to kill Haman. His total focus and concentration and commitment to this goal. We also wondered early on whether or not Haman was aware that Minerva might be a new type. We had seen Minerva feel sick and react in a very frightened way in situations where she was maybe being exposed to some, some bad new type energies. <laughs> uh, and Haman didn't seem to recognize that that was what was happening. She certainly does now. So in that scene with Haman and Minerva, I know we were talking about Camille, but I have to ask, when Haman tells Minerva, we'll sink the Argama, Shar will help us if necessary. Does Haman think that Shar is still a free agent, or is she only saying this for the effect it will have on Minerva? I think she is saying it for the effect it will have on Minerva. I think she also believes that Shar will not go down with Ayug. If Ayug is removed, if it becomes very clear that Axis is in power, I think she truly believes that he will come over to Axis. He's not committed enough to whatever Ayug's ideological goals are to go down with that ship. After Haman deploys in the Kubelay, before Camille attacks, she hears him screaming her name, though he is definitely not actually broadcasting on the wireless. This is a new type thing, but she can feel his battle aura so intensely that it's like telepathy. When she first goes out, it's Katz who attacks her first, and I couldn't help but feel deep frustration that these Ayug people cannot work together. Isn't the whole point of flying out in formation that you all like help <laughs> each other? The point of having wing people is that two against one is better than one against one. Many members of Ayug are in fact capable of working together. Cats is cats. cats is cats. I really liked the way this fight was animated. I thought it was very exciting, very dynamic. And then we have Ooh. new type connection moment. <laughs> <laughs> when they first reach communion, it can be felt throughout the battlefield. Do you remember who feels it? I wrote this down. Char feels it. Emma feels it. Do you remember back in first Gundam when Amuro and Lala had their communion moment? Sela felt it. Char felt it. Mm. And Mirai felt it. Now, Quattro, of course, is still... Char. And we have gotten the impression before, and I think this is yet more evidence toward it, Emma is our Sela. We're used to thinking of new type ability as a skill, as a net benefit. This episode also tries to highlight some ways in which it can be a weakness or a, a vulnerability. An, Ach an Achilles heel, yes. <laughs> uh, because both Haman and Camille are overcome when this happens. Waves of energy are coming off of them. They are both overcome. They both feel pain. And, and confusion. Right. They were not trying to connect with each other in this way. It just happened. And when they find themselves in new type space, neither of them knows what's going on or where they are or who they're looking at. And what flashes through their minds are other new types that they've met. For Camille, it's all women. For Haman, it's all men. Um, and it's a sense of like trying to puzzle out who this person is. Could it be Char? Could it be Sirocco? No, the energy's not quite right. But not necessarily new types. I think it might have to do with people they've had a strong connection to. It's been pointed out to us several times that Rekoa is probably not a new type. Well, but she's had communions with Camille before. If she's a new type, she's probably a weak one, but I don't think she's an old type. 
What about his mother, though? That's, yeah, that's the real question. What about his mother? Why is his mother in this collection of women? And why is she the most important one? Well, she's in the memory. Right. The music during this is all great, by the way. It's a bit discordant. It makes you feel on edge. Uh, and I love that they're introducing a bit of a mystery. That's one thing Zeta has not had much of is mystery. And I like it. So I'm excited for this one. Camille and Haman's auras both sort of arc overhead and tie into a knot, for lack of a better word, a tangle, which immediately made me think of the concept of the red thread of fate, which is from Chinese and Japanese mythology and has to do usually with romantic relationships, uh, but has at other times been used to talk about other sort of strong connection that supersedes lifetimes is the idea. Then a bunch of light shoots out of the knot. Both Camille and Haman seem to be remembering things that are sort of at the edge of their memory, things that they don't actually remember. Camille thinks it's a memory. Haman thinks it might be a dream rather than a memory. In it, Camille's, he's with his mother. In Haman's, she's with Char. Both of them look very happy. Camille is in sort of a nondescript room. Haman looks like she's maybe on that side that looks like Switzerland. Because mm. they're at the side of a lake and there's tall mountains behind them. And mm -hmm. Yeah, it's hard to imagine that anything like that exists out on Axis. But in the same moment that Haman is sort of dismissing this as it's only memories, Camille sounds very excited and says, so people can understand each other. For Camille, this is new type philosophy in practice. This is what he's been told being a new type can be, that he could have true understanding with another person. Instantly. And this is why I think he should have known better than to try to make peace with Haman, because her reaction to that is to immediately get angry. Don't get close to me. How dare you? She pulls them out of it. She downplays and resists. Because she knows that true empathy would destroy her. She doesn't want to understand him. She wants power. I think she doesn't want to be understood. She doesn't want anyone in her mind, in her memories. So you think it's just a desire not to be vulnerable, a desire not to be understood or close to anyone? I think Haman rejects the mortifying ordeal of being known. <laughs> she does not care for the rewards of being understood. But I think that's because it would undermine her quest for power. Yes, I guess it's it's hard to imagine her like particularly caring about what's going on in somebody else's inner world. Yeah. So to bring it back to why Camille should have understood, that mutual understanding only works when both people want it. <laughs> and she very clearly did not. Mm -hmm. It was possible and she rejected it. I mean, I think the message there is pretty clear that mutual understanding is not enough. Even a perfect understanding between two people isn't actually enough to ensure peace, bring an end to the conflict, end war. She accuses him of being no different than Char. But I kind of see where she's coming from. Expand on that a little. <laughs> Go back a couple of episodes to when they're talking with the doctor about cyber new types. Shah has talked a lot about how the Earth is in peril and they need to uh, move the human population off of Earth so that Earth can return to nature as a kind of like sacred preserve. But what Shah really believes and has since first Gundam is that people must become new types 
so that humanity can survive. People must transcend humanity and evolve into the next stage of human existence. The soft underbelly of this philosophy is that it relies on the assumption that becoming new types will make people better, that this ability to understand each other will have tangible effects in the real world. It will end wars, it will end conflict if people can understand each other. And this is why, for sure, the idea of using the cyber new type apparatus to make people into new types is appealing. <laughs> yes, and it can be justified because the idea is once people are new types, this whole host of other problems will be solved. And Camille seems to believe that as well, at least in this interaction. But Haman rejects it, and I think the show rejects it. I think Haman is the show's way of demonstrating that that's not true. That's hopelessly naive. This is then contrasted with Camille's conversation with Shar at the end of the episode. Camille blames himself for not killing Haman, and he says that his emotions were not strong enough to take on her will. My fragile feelings lost to her intense will. Which is kind of what happened. He, he hoped for a while that he wouldn't need to kill her. Also, a voice called out to him on the battlefield. Yeah. And said, people can understand each other, right? Could not tell who that voice was. <laughs> it's a puzzle. I did some digging, um, trying to find if anyone had positively identified that voice. I couldn't find anything. I asked a bunch of our listeners on the MSB patron discord to help out. Uh, and collectively, it seems to be Rekawa's voice, both in the Japanese and the English, speaking to Camille in that moment. <laughs> which is weird. Very doesn't really seem like a Rekua kind of thing to say. Also, she's not there. Also, what does she care if he kills Haman? I don't, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, dear listeners, if you have an explanation for that, or if you actually know for certain whose voice that is, please let us know. And this is why I think Shar is so stunted as a new type. He also resists the vulnerability of being a real new type. He rejects it. He's not interested in being that vulnerable. And that is always going to hold him back. What's curious is that it does not seem to have held back Haman. She is very strong. Nor has it held back Sirocco, who seems to have the same attitude. Go figure. <laughs> well, both Haman and Sirocco are about projecting power. Sirocco sits on his battleship. His aura fills the whole battlefield. And then when he's actually in battle, he shoots his mind ghost at Haman. And she does the same thing to him. The other thing that stuck out in this scene and harkens back to the opening of the talkback where we discussed how Zeta is really about individual important you know, heroes fighting each other rather than about the larger movements of the war. Uh, Shar tells Camille, Haman might be my responsibility. <laughs> if I remember correctly, the word he uses in Japanese is yakume, which is a, a duty, which is very personal and self-centered when you think about like, wait, we're talking about entire armies. It's not one leader's responsibility to take out the leader of the other <laughs> faction. Like that's not how this works at all. Except in Zeta it is. And in all of those old heroic sagas, it was. The clash between the leaders of the two different sides was an essential part of the story. Does the 
shared memory or the connected or similar memories. We don't know that it's one memory that the two of them share or if it's separate memories that are connected somehow. But they do seem to have seen each other's. But does this have any connection to the photo Rosamia had that seemed to show Camille hmm. as a young boy about the same age as he is in this memory? Hmm. Well, it definitely has a thematic connection, even if it isn't a literal one. But I don't think we have enough evidence yet to say whether that is a... We absolutely don't have enough evidence yet, but that's why I'm excited. <laughs> it's a mystery. I know how you like a mystery. But now I need to talk about the thematic importance of this clash, especially in the ways it contrasts with First Gundam. So you had mentioned the memories just now. Each of these memories is similar to the other in that they are about a relationship with a person and a relationship that has been lost. They have a sadness to them, a, a sad nostalgia. Camille longs for his mother, and through the parallelism of the two memories, we can see that Haman has a kind of longing for Shar. I mean, in the memory, she's like literally hanging off of him. Big grin. They look like they're on a date. I think each of them is looking for someone to fill this void in their lives, which makes it really significant that they have these memories when they commune with each other. Uh. <laughs> well, but that's the thing. Neither of them is a good fit for this longing. Yeah, Haman would be a terrible mommy girlfriend. Camille would not be a very good Shar either. Shar boyfriend? I hope it's clear. I'm making a joke that Camille frequently looks for mother figures in women that he's also kind of attracted to, and I find that weird. It's a bit of a pattern with him. He cycles through a bunch of them when he's looking at Haman in new type space. He's like, could this be Rekua, who I wanted to be my mommy girlfriend? Or Emma, who I wanted to be my mommy girlfriend? Or Faha? Or Four? Or Rosami, who I wanted to be my sister girlfriend. Little different. <laughs> or my actual mother. Not girlfriend. <laughs> it's like he's trying her out for this void in his life. And the same is true on her side. Because... Both First Gundam and Zeta are about a found family, about a pseudo family, about trying to fill the holes in your life that have been left by your own inadequate biological family. In First Gundam, when Amro and Lala communed and clashed, one of the key questions she asked him is, why are you fighting? You have nothing to fight for. You have no homeland, no, no country. And Amro says, of course I have something to fight for. I have my friends. The white base was his family. For Camille, as much as it's a pale imitation of the white base, the Argama is his family now. The other theme is this sense of new type understanding, of understanding each other and connecting with other people. And now they are in conflict. The thing that dispels Camille's desire to understand Haman and make peace with her is the arrival of Katz and Fa and the danger to them. It is Camille's desire to protect his family that overcomes his desire to commune, to understand. Even if that understanding could, in theory, end the conflict. But as we pointed out before, the desire for understanding has to be mutual. Both sides have to want to understand each other and to be understood. And Haman's not interested in either. And for Camille, it's just not as important as protecting his friend family. We should remember that this harkens back to other moments where Camille didn't want to kill someone. And he's seen that go badly several times. He has seen his own resistance to killing the enemy result in 
deaths of his comrades. Wait, are you saying that Camille has learned something? Yes. Aw, he is a good space boy. <laughs> oh. You know, he came very close to having that happen again. And I think that brush with the loss of his comrades, his found family, snaps him out of it. Although he is certainly more controlled than Katz, by the end of the episode, I think Camille agrees with Katz that it is their hatred that lets them fight. It's, it is hatred that allows Camille to overcome his general resistance to killing anybody. And on the other side, at the end of the episode, as Haman is sitting in her chair, she understands him better than ever, and she hates him all the more for it. And now our research, in which we ask, what does Edgar Allan Poe have to do with Seda Gundam? The title of this episode is a puzzle. In Japanese, it's Sora no Uzu. At least, that's what the furigana, or the small print, phonetic spelling over the characters, says. And that's what the narrator says as well. This means something like maelstrom of the sky, or of the heavens. However... If you read the kanji, it says uchu no uzu, which means the maelstrom of space, as in the universe, the cosmos. I poked around in an attempt to see if the characters for uchu are ever read as sora, since many characters have multiple ways of being read and pronounced, but couldn't find any evidence of that. So for some reason, it has two Japanese titles. <laughs> then we have the English title, a descent into the maelstrom. The feeling is quite different. We aren't just naming something, there is an action. <laughs> Still more interesting, it is word for word the title of one of Edgar Allan Poe's short stories. I checked to see if Sora no Uzu or Uchu no Uzu was the Japanese title for the same story, but it's not. In Japanese, the story is called Merustrom ni nomarete, which is swallowed or engulfed by the maelstrom. The story has its own page on Japanese Wikipedia, and they list several other titles that have been given by different translators. It's not an exhaustive list, but none of these versions match up exactly, although several of them do use the Japanese word for maelstrom, uzu, rather than the loan word merstromu. To me, this seems like evidence that there was no direct reference to Poe's story in the Japanese title. On the other hand, in 1972, none other than Arthur C. Clarke published a hard sci-fi short story inspired by Poe's work, and another sci-fi version of the story was part of the science fiction manga 2001 Nights, which began serialization in June of 1984. It's not difficult to imagine that someone on the Zeta team had read one of these works, and these are just recent and science fiction opportunities for exposure to the story. Poe was popular and influential in Japan in his own right. Many of you are probably familiar with Poe's work, but for any who are not, Edgar Allan Poe was an American writer, poet, editor, and literary critic who was a major part of the Romanticism movement in American literature, and is considered to be one of the earliest American authors to work in the short story medium. Born in 1809 and dead by only 1849, he is credited with establishing detective fiction as a genre, some 50 years before Sherlock Holmes was written. 
and even wrote early science fiction. In fact, the story A Descent into the Maelstrom is considered a work of science fiction, for reasons that I will explain a little later on. He is most famous for his gothic horror and suspense works, but was interested in physics, cosmology, and cryptography. Poe's work was first translated in Japan in Meiji 20, or 1887. From then on, his works were frequently translated, although sometimes indirectly from other languages like German, and they were highly influential for a number of Japanese authors and poets. Taro Hirai, one of the grandfathers of Japanese mystery and detective fiction, is better known by his pen name, Edogawa Rampo, fashioned after the Japanese pronunciation of Edgar Allan Poe, Edgar Aran Poe. Poe and his stories also inspired some aspects of the more contemporary Detective Conan series. Given that a descent into the maelstrom is not exactly a common phrase, we are going to move forward under the assumption that the translator or translation team made the Poe reference on purpose. Whether the original team intended the episode to refer to Poe's story, we're sort of unsure. The characters do say Maelstromu and not Uzu when they talk about the operation, and there are some accounts that Tomino was quite involved in the translation of Zeta. The way I heard it is that he was uh, meddling in the translation. <laughs> now, I don't know if these rumors are true, but I did hear them from Anime News Network's Mike Toole, who is very closely connected to the whole anime localization industry and has been for a long time. Uh, he describes them as rumors, so take it with a grain of salt. The story, A Descent into the Maelstrom, is about a real whirlpool, the Moskstraumen, in the Lofoten Islands off the coast of Norway. It is a story within a story, a fisherman who appears to be an old man but turns out to have been prematurely aged by a harrowing experience, is telling a visitor about the events that caused his sudden old appearance. Myself and two brothers once owned a schooner, with which we were in the habit of fishing among the islands beyond Moscow, nearly to Verg. In all violent eddies at sea there is good fishing, at proper opportunities, if one only has the courage to attempt it. But among the whole of the Lofton coastmen, we three were the only ones who made a regular business of going out to the islands. Navigating the area requires very precise timing. There is a narrow window in which the whirlpool usually calms, and the tides and flow of water are such that they are able to sail past. However, if they miss their timing, or the wind is against them, they have to wait in place until the next turning of the tide. One day, they are caught suddenly and unexpectedly in a horrible storm, and one of the brothers is washed overboard. The ship struggles in the waves and wind, the rain blinds them and the roar of the wind and water deafens them. When the storm finally ceases and they think they might be safe, they realize that they have been blown to the edge of the maelstrom and are beginning to be sucked in. As they approach, both brothers are paralyzed by terror, but when they reach the edge, the one telling the tale says, It may appear strange, but now, when we were in the very jaws of the gulf, I felt more composed than when we were only approaching it. Having made up my mind to hope no more, I got rid of a great deal of that terror which unmanned me at first. I suppose it was despair that strung my nerves. He goes on to say that, It may look like boasting, but what I tell you is truth. I began to reflect how magnificent a thing it was to die in such a manner, and how foolish it was in me to think of so paltry a consideration as my own individual life in view of so wonderful a manifestation of God's power. After a little while, I became possessed with the keenest curiosity about the world itself. 
I positively felt a, a wish to explore its depths, even at the sacrifice I was going to make. And my principal grief was that I should never be able to tell my old companions on shore about the mysteries I should see. His brother, still overcome by fear, forces him off his handhold, since it seems the better one. But he doesn't blame his brother. He understands that his brother wasn't in his right mind, and doesn't see what difference a handhold will make when the ship goes down anyway. He thought the ship would be sucked straight down to the depths, but that is not what happens. Never shall I forget the sensation of awe, horror, and admiration with which I gazed about me. The boat appeared to be hanging, as if by magic, midway down upon the interior surface of a funnel, vast in circumference, prodigious in depth, and whose perfectly smooth sides might have been mistaken for ebony, but for the bewildering rapidity with which they spun round, and for the gleaming and ghastly radiance they shot forth, as the rays of the full moon, from that circular rift amid the clouds which I have already described, streamed in a flow of golden glory along the black walls, and far away down into the inmost recesses of the abyss. In his odd calm, he begins to make observations about the functioning and effect of the whirlpool. At first, I was too much confused to observe anything accurately. The general burst of terrific grandeur was all that I beheld. When I recovered myself a little, however, my gaze fell instinctively downward. In this direction, I was able to obtain an unobstructed view from the manner in which the smack hung on the inclined surface of the pool. She was quite upon an even keel, that is to say, her deck lay in a plane parallel with that of the water, but this latter sloped at an angle of more than 45 degrees, so that we seemed to be lying upon our beam ends. I could not help observing, nevertheless, that I had scarcely more difficulty in maintaining my hold and footing than if we had been upon a dead level, and this, I suppose, was owing to the speed at which we revolved. Looking about me, upon the wide waste of liquid ebony on which we were thus borne, I perceived that our boat was not the only object in the embrace of the squirrel. Both above and below us were visible fragments of vessels, large masses of building timber and trunks of trees, with many smaller articles, such as pieces of house furniture, broken boxes, barrels, and staves. I have already described the unnatural curiosity which had taken place of my original terrors. It appeared to grow upon me as I drew nearer and nearer to my dreadful doom. I now began to watch, with a strange interest, the numerous things that floated in our company. I must have been delirious, for I even sought amusement in speculating upon the relative velocities of their several descents toward the foam below. This fir tree, I found myself at one time saying, will certainly be the next thing that takes the awful plunge and disappears. And then I was disappointed to find that the wreck of a Dutch merchant ship overtook it and went down before. At length, after making several guesses of this nature and being deceived in all, this fact, the fact of my invariable miscalculation, set me upon a train of reflection that made my limbs again tremble and my heart beat heavily once more. It was not a new terror that thus affected me, but the dawn of a more exciting hope. This hope arose partly from memory and partly from present observation. I called to mind the great variety of buoyant matter that strewed the coast of Lofden, having been absorbed and then thrown forth by the Moskstrom. By far the greater number of the articles were shattered in the most extraordinary way, so chafed and roughened as to have the appearance of being stuck full of splinters. But then I distinctly recollected that there were some of them which were not disfigured at all. Now I could not account for this difference except by supposing that the roughened fragments were the only ones which had been completely absorbed 
that the others had entered the whirl at so late a period of the tide, or, for some reason, had descended so slowly after entering that they did not reach the bottom before the turn of the flood came, or, or of the ebb, as the case may be. I conceived it possible, in either instance, that they might thus be whirled up again to the level of the ocean without undergoing the fate of those which had been drawn in more early or absorbed more rapidly. I made also three important observations. The first was that as a general rule, the larger the bodies were, the more rapid their descent. The second, that between two masses of equal extent, the one spherical and the other any other shape, the superiority in speed of descent was with the sphere. The third, that between two masses of equal size, the one cylindrical and the other of any other shape, the cylinder was absorbed the more slowly. He realizes that they are in more danger aboard the large vessel than they would be if they were in the sea on something smaller, and takes a hard look at the cask he has been clinging to. Deciding that the hope of survival is better than nothing, he communicates his plan to his brother, but his brother, in his terror, refuses to go. There is no time to waste, and he ties himself to the cask and tips himself into the sea. Shortly thereafter, the ship is sucked down. A few hours later, the tides shift, the whirlpool slackens, and our shipwrecked survivor is picked up by another fishing vessel. Although they are all his neighbors, none of them recognize him. This harrowing ordeal has made him look like an old man. Literary critics and analysts have a few different interpretations of this story. Several talk about Poe's cosmology. He had some rather deep thoughts about the nature of matter, the universe, and God, including that the death instinct, which also gets talked about in Freud and by some other uh, early psychologists and philosophers, and is that little part of you that thinks of stepping off a high place, was in fact a subconscious desire for oneness with God, and that humans are but the physical manifestation of God's thoughts. Aside from being a story of adventure and horror, Many critics see it as, quote, a vision of the nature of the cosmos and man's place in it. The point is not merely to frighten, but to encourage some consideration of humanity's place in the universe. There is tension in the story between chaos and control, emotion and reason. But different critics see them aligning in different ways. To some, fear is brought on by sensory perception, sights, sounds, the feeling of the storm, while lucidity requires distancing from these sensory perceptions and is necessary for rational thought. The sailor's survival is dependent on rational observation of the natural world and its workings. This, plus the sailor's discussion of fluid dynamics, is why some consider the story a work of science fiction. But to others, the fear reaction to the situation is the rational one. The lucidity, on the other hand, coming from acceptance of death or some other mysterious or even mystical force, allows for intuiting the laws of nature from a place where individual thought, quote, vibrates in tune with the thoughts of the universal mind. Perhaps even a place of true perspective on the nature of the universe and one's place in it. The sailor's fear is overcome by awe of nature on the side of the spiritual and curiosity on the side of the rational. His survival is paradoxical. It depends on both an acceptance of death, since this seems to contribute to his lucid moments, and then a resistance to death. He realizes in his lucid moments that survival and escape are possible. He does not consign himself to the whirlpool in the way his brother does. There are, like as not, more mysteries there. 
There's more knowledge he could uncover within the maelstrom, but he contents himself with the understanding necessary for his survival. My theory is that this is about Camille specifically, and perhaps new types more generally. But consider Camille. Camille has glimpsed something essential in the nature of the universe. He has peeked behind the curtain. He is suspended in the whirlpool. And like the sailor, Camille has been aged by his experiences. He has been permanently altered. But he needs to have these experiences without being consumed by them. This is perhaps why Char cautions Camille. Camille has gained insights, but could pursue them too far into the abyss. The pursuit of knowledge can be self-destructive. We see that in Camille's brief break from wanting to kill Haman. He wants to understand her. He's seen that it's possible, but some things can't be known without destroying us. So while Nina was doing the research on this, I had the opportunity both to read the original Poe story, which is very good, very short, and in the public domain. So we will put in some links in the show notes and highly recommend that you read that yourself. One thing that struck me about it is when the narrator is on a cliff looking down at the maelstrom, the way he describes the sea kind of sounds like the way a person might describe space as vast and dark and endless and dangerous. And that may be part of why, along with the science fiction elements that Nina talked about, this particular story has been reinterpreted by so many different science fiction authors. Arthur C. Clarke, and then the mangaka Hoshino Yukinobu, who created 2001 Nights. I also had the opportunity to read an English translation of the section of 2001 Nights, which is a reinterpretation of the Maelstrom story. And having read it, I find it very difficult to believe that the creators of Gundam and Zeta Gundam had not read this. <laughs> 2001 Nights uh, follows humanity as it moves out into the solar system. Each story is a little bit further along on that path. And this one is the third or the fourth, depending on which collection you're looking at. And it is the story of two partners who are mining resources in the asteroid belt. Their ship is damaged and it begins to accelerate, driven by the solar wind out of the solar system. It is moving so quickly that the uh, rescue shuttle sent to get them is not able to catch up. One of them is killed when an asteroid strikes their ship. Uh, and the other one is left alone trying to figure out how to survive or even if he should survive, facing the possibility that he might fly out beyond the solar system and become the first human to travel that far. Ultimately, he decides to try to save himself. Their ship is rotating. And so he, what he does is he climbs out and he goes to the very end of the rotating sails on their ship and he grabs hold and he lets the uh, rotational velocity accelerate him, and then he has to let go at exactly the right moment so that he's sent flying back towards the rescue shuttle instead of off into space. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, the very strong theme of there are places too far for man to go. There, There is knowledge that you cannot have unless you are beyond the veil of death. Beyond what it means to be human. And so the world in which this sci-fi maelstrom manga takes place looks a lot like the universal century. You know, asteroid mining, most of human civilization is in space now, but still centered around Earth. And these few uh, wild explorers are turning into different kinds of people out in the wilderness of space. 
I forgot to mention one of the sort of subplots in this manga, and it's not very long, but he keeps having these memories of his daughter who he was born on Earth and his daughter was born on the moon. And they think of themselves as totally different kinds of people. He's an earthen, but she's a moonin, and he's hoping that, that her children will be Marsans. Wow. Yeah, worth remembering, you know, that is a manga that began serialization almost a year before the first episode of Zeta aired. Uh, and I'm sure there are people on the team who were reading, you know, the monthly manga releases that had these serials in them, especially science fiction ones. Absolutely. The other thing that struck me about the Poe story, which you mentioned, uh, was the difficulty that the fisherman had in communicating his revelation to his brother. That even after he's realized how to survive, he tries to indicate this to his brother, but they can't talk because of the maelstrom and because they're so far apart. So he tries to like signal it, mime it, and he's not able to. I understood that scene a bit differently. I, th I thought his brother understood exactly what he wanted to do and refused, mm. was too afraid to even attempt it. Well, perhaps my uh, understanding of that scene was influenced by something I read recently from Yas, uh, ah. the character designer for First Gundam and also for many of the characters in Zeta, who is uh, credited as one of the biggest influences on early Gundam, who has in interviews said that he thinks the main theme of Gundam is that it is impossible to understand other people. I don't think that's necessarily invalidated by the story because I think when he when he says that he's talking about true complete understanding which is impossible you can never completely understand another person because you cannot have their lived experience <laughs> you would have to have lived the entirety of their same life in order to completely understand them so what if you could uh, experience all of their memories wouldn't that be basically the same yeah if anybody would do that <laughs> Hi, new time. Because <laughs> that's what Camille is talking about when he says we could understand each other. I agree. We could understand how we got here. Because, yeah, in the story, he can communicate the nuts and bolts of what he's doing. He can communicate to his brother, I'm going to cling to this barrel and jump overboard. Because I think that gives me a better chance than staying on this ship. What he cannot communicate is, I have had this intense insight about the nature of reality <laughs> and physics. And it has given me hope. He cannot break through his brother's fear. Mm -hmm. Well, what he can't convey is the understanding. He can explain his reasoning. He can give his brother the facts. But that actual like, intuitive moment of clarity when he understands, that he can't convey. Next time on episode 2.49, Tabula Rasa, we cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 48 and Oni-chan, Killer Rifts, Bear Trap, Bildungsroman, Every Cyber New Type Girl in the World, Identity Crisis, Meet Cute, Angry Ghosts, Rekawa's Revenge, and Fa Gets a Monologue, You Will See the Tears of Time.
Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or share your wrong Gundam opinion with the world by shouting, Release order? Chronological order? No, the only correct way to watch Gundam is in alphabetical order. Out your window at passersby. We might not hear you, but the world needs to know. Our wrong Gundam opinion this week comes from the members of the MSB Discord, and the TNN this week featured the voice talents of friend of the show, Ali. Thank you all. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. They like set it up like you. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, it's a long one. New take as many breaks as she needs. <laughs>